Hello, and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Failing U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Failing U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, my colleague Mohit Malik and I spoke to Professor Rana Mitter, who is Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China at Oxford University. As a part of the U.S. Center's U.S.-China seminar series, Professor Mitter joined us to discuss the political use of historical narratives in China and how China's perception of itself and its place in the world has changed over the past few decades. Professor Mitter also discussed the nature of America's relationship with China and how the country operates within the American-led liberal international order. How has the broad historical and national narrative in China changed from the 20th to the 21st century? There are a lot of ways, Chris, in which... China's policymakers, thinkers, public intellectuals have changed the way that they engage with history. One thing that's remained constant, though, is that history remains tremendously important for understanding the way that China thinks today. And while you might say that about any country, I think it is more true of China than it is, say, of the US or the UK. It is a constant running through the way in which people think about the here and now. But it has changed between, let's say, 70s, 80s, 90s, the last part of the 20th century, and what we now see about half a century later in the 2020s. And if I was going to choose one way, one tangible way in which I think an important historical turning point has changed, then I would go back to the 1940s. Because for a very long time, you could say that Chinese history, modern Chinese history, the history of China under communist rule began in 1949. In other words, the year that Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao, won the mainland, won a victory in the civil war against his nationalist or Kuomintang opponent, Chiang Kai-shek, who was exiled to the island of Taiwan, never to return. And that at that point, in the view of the party and of the hundreds of millions of people, over a billion really by the, by the uh, more recent period, in that view, essentially the trajectory of history had its first birth. In 1949. And I would say that that has changed in the last, let's say, couple of decades. It hasn't completely changed. In other words, 1949 remains a tremendously important touchstone in terms of the way in which the Chinese Communist Party thinks about itself. You could call it a birth moment, if you like. But there's another moment of birth. And that second birth moment is one that's maybe more familiar to those who know geopolitics but don't know China so well. And it's 1945. Now, Fans of the podcast who may have spent a lot of time thinking about geopolitics may say, well, what's so new about that? Everyone's thinking about 1945. We talk about the post-1945 world order. But the point is that for a very long time, China didn't. Because the 1945 moment, the end of World War II in Asia as well as in Europe, marked a new beginning for the previous Chinese regime, the nationalist government, which really only stayed in power on the mainland for the best part of four years till it was kicked out in the civil war. And Essentially, there was then another year zero. But today's Communist Party has actually reclaimed 1945. It now sees it as a second moment in which the Communist Party played an important role, essentially in establishing a China that was part of a new global order, a global international consensus. For instance, China being a founding member of the United Nations. Now, there are many problems and flaws when you look at the detailed historical evidence behind this narrative. But in terms of thinking about how Chinese thinkers have changed their view of modern history in recent years, 
the addition of 1945 to 1949 as the two twin points of the opening of the modern era for China, that's very significant. Great. Thank you so much. So it was not until 1979 that relations between Beijing and Washington opened up. In what ways did China's delayed entry into the post-war international system impact its self-perception and its policies? One of the things that was most peculiar about the Cold War is that it was regarded as a bipolar system. It is a bipolar system in many ways. The United States and its allies on one side, the Soviet Union on the other. Now, that story always needed a lot of adjustment, not least if you were living in the post-colonial world in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. That story didn't always make a huge amount of sense. But I always think that China ought to be more prominent in that story than it has been. If you want to think about the Cold War as not a bipolar system, but one that's more like a tripod, and that China is perhaps the slightly shorter third leg, well, that leads to a kind of slightly uneven, uh, unsettled kind of tripod. And that's maybe not um, a bad metaphor for the Cold War in certain ways. And one of the reasons why China gets left out of that story is that unlike either the US or the Soviet Union, it was not fully incorporated for the first quarter of a century of the Cold War into the international system. And although the story is well known, it's worth just remembering briefly the reason for that. Essentially, in 1949, a civil war saw the victory of the Chinese communists on the mainland. But at that point, it wasn't absolutely clear what was going to happen. And for about a year or so, the Truman administration, the US administration at the time, along with the then Secretary of State, uh, George C. Marshall, were really, the evidence shows, prepared to accept that not only the mainland, but the island of Taiwan, where Chiang Kai-shek, Mao Zedong's great opponent, had fled, might fall to the communists. And if so, that was the way it was going to be. And the thing that switched that perception very, very strongly was the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950, when China and North Korea, with Stalin's acquiescence, support really, invaded the south of Korea and led to essentially the first major hot war of the Cold War, at least in, in Asia. And the aftermath of the Korean War went in a direction that would shape China's place in the world for another couple of decades, really. It could have been the case that when a ceasefire was signed in 1953, that the United States and the People's Republic of China could have come to some sort of diplomatic agreement. Well, history shows they didn't do that. Mao wanted to continue to, as he put it, lean to one side into the communist world. And John Foster Dulles, as well as, of course, President Eisenhower in the U.S., were not keen to, see, to be seen to, to cede to communism. So that meant that essentially the world's most populous nation was kept outside the standard international frameworks for all the period from the early 1950s up to the early 1970s. It wasn't till 1971 that, through a series of negotiations, China finally took the China seat at the United Nations, worth remembering that Taiwan, the island of Taiwan, had held the China seat until that time, even though by the end that looked increasingly ludicrous to much of the world. And it wasn't until 1979, 30 years after the Chinese Revolution, that President Jimmy Carter and Deng Xiaoping officially opened relations between the US and China. Did that huge gap in diplomatic engagement between the US and China make a difference? Well, yes, of course it did. In many ways, much of the domestic turmoil that China suffered during that time, admittedly through the infliction of actions of its own leaders, Mao Zedong and the Communist Party, the Great Leap Forward famine of the 1950s, the Cultural Revolution, China turning inward in on itself in a kind of vicious civil war in the 1960s, 
I think that those would not have been impossible, but they would have been much, much harder for the communist leadership to undertake in a world where China was more fully integrated into the world. And it's worth noting that even though China-US relations have had ups and downs, recently probably more downs than ups in the decades since then, that kind of complete inward turning of China against itself, which was a product of that period of relative global isolation, has never recurred in quite the same way. Human rights abuses and repression, yes. The cultural revolution coming back, no. And I think a globalized China, even if it's more isolated from the world, is less than likely ever to go back to that kind of ideological movement. So you've written about the ways in which World War II was commemorated in China and how this impacts national identity there. Could you talk a bit about how Chinese nationalism may or may not differ from the kind of nationalism we see in the US and, and, the, and in the West? Chinese nationalism, Chris, is one of those phrases that gets used almost as a kind of slogan or um, a holding mechanism to try and avoid analysis rather than actually to encourage it. I mean, a bit rude there, but on the other hand, I think sometimes the phrase is used simply to avoid going into the complexity behind the surface. And I want to just spend a minute or two to do that. I would say that Chinese nationalism, that term we hear quite often, is divided into at least two things. One is the thing that is, I think, most noticed in the outside world, which is xenophobia, the idea of anti-foreignism. And let's be really frank, that is one very unpleasant part of Chinese nationalism. It does exist. It has to be noted and explained. But I think that the vast majority of China's nationalism actually is very similar to nationalism as felt in the strict sense of that term, the idea of creating a sort of ideological attachment that is linked to an idea of what that, in the words of the famous political scientist Benedict Anderson, imagined community of the nation state actually is. We have that in the United Kingdom, where I'm speaking to you now. Um, a very odd nation state, because actually it's four nation states, at least, um, placed together in one entity. You have it in the United States, uh, a country which has its own contradictions and difficulties, and yet a very strong sense of national identity. And what I think actually thinking about Britain or the US, or actually France, or many, many other countries in the world does when we bring nationalism to mind is that actually, most of what people think about when they think about nationalism is not about other countries, it's about themselves. It's about what they think of themselves, their neighbors, their history, their future. And that is, I think, overwhelmingly true in China. Now, again, reasons of time mean that people will be glad to know, I think, that we won't be going through a whole list, a kind of checklist of different types of uh, Chinese nationalism. But I want to just mention just one because it links to the research, which you've kindly mentioned, that I've been doing far too many decades now, which is the way that China relates to its own history during World War II. And that is worth noting, first of all, because some listeners may not be familiar with how devastating World War II was for China. A couple of quick facts and figures at the top of my head. It lasted longer than any other theater of World War II, 1937 to 45. You have huge numbers of deaths caused by the war, both direct combat casualties and famines and other uh, terrible events, which certainly put the numbers 8, 10, 12 million, depending, you know, more than that, depending on how you want to count them and how reliable the statistics are. But we know that they're large. Um, and also, not incidentally, holding down more than half a million Japanese troops for many years until Pearl Harbor, which doesn't come along till four and a half years after the Chinese and Japanese go to war. So it's a traumatic event that continues to have a long history behind it. And of course, it does fuel, even today, in some places, an anti-Japanese nationalism. 
That's true. But I would say the most important part of what makes World War II and the collective social memory 80 years after the events, more than 80 years after the events commemorated, a nationalist memory, is that they relate to how the Chinese thought about each other. In other words, when people fled refugees during the 30s and 40s to parts of China that had not been invaded by the Japanese, they often fled to areas that were not controlled by the communists who would later come to power after 1949, but by the then ruling nationalists or Kuomintang under Chiang Kai-shek. For a long time, those people weren't allowed to tell their stories in Mao's China because they had gone to the politically incorrect part of China as wartime refugees. But that finally cracked and changed in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, and those stories did become publicized. They became seen on, they became publicized. They became seen on television, uh, spread through social media. There's a huge amount of discussion of these events. And the interesting thing is almost none of it is about the Japanese. Very little of it is about war crimes or bombings or all the terrible things that Japan did to China during that time. It's about how the Chinese treated each other and try to overcome that political division that existed, of course, in the civil war between the nationalists and communists, and instead instead say, well, there was a time when actually different parties in China came together to fight an outside opponent. And it's worth remembering that period as one when actually national identity could be generated and shared through a variety of sources, not just ideological fixation with the Chinese Communist Party itself. That's the kind of nationalism that I think has been more transformative in China in recent years, but it tends to be less noticed in the outside world. Great, thank you. I'm going to hand over now to my colleague Mohit Malik. So I just want to touch base on a few of the points that you just made. Um, When you mentioned the reclaiming of 1945 that has occurred, how to what extent is that reclaiming a form of historical revisionism and how much of it is actually a more accurate per- portrayal of what did occur during World War II? And um, as a part of that, because I know you also mentioned that this reclamation has to do with positioning China as one of the founders of this po- post-war order, um, how much of that push to be in that position has to do with the importance that sovereignty is given within this order. One of the things that's most unusual about the way in which the 1945 moment has been reclaimed by today's China is that it's both an attempt to try and create a revisionist language and a revisionist message in the contemporary geopolitical scene, but it is also almost by default an addition of accuracy, the way in which the history of that period is put forward. So both of those things are, I think, included in what's happening. So first of all, let's think about the revisionism. Let me give you a particular example that comes right from the top. You can't get bigger than Xi Jinping. And Xi Jinping himself has said repeatedly, various public forums, as indeed has Wang Yi, the current foreign minister of of China. I was speaking to you, by the way, just before the big party congress, which will happen in mid-October. So If you're listening to this after that, all personnel, most personnel apart from one very top leader may have changed by that stage. But at the moment of speaking, Wang Yi is the foreign minister. So he and Xi Jinping have frequently said, the world should remember, when we think about the United Nations, that China wasn't just a founder member of the UN, which of course it was. It was actually the first signatory to the UN Charter in San Francisco in spring of 1945. Now, that first signer thing is is more of a kind of function of the alphabetical order, but actually... 
you know, we all have seen sleight of hands in politics in various places. And the fact that China wants to claim that first mover, first signer position is really significant. And what it does is to essentially give China ownership of the United Nations structure and the international order as a whole. In other words, say, we weren't just people who came along later in the day and um, entered this system later on. We were there, we paid in blood and tears in World War II, just as the Americans did, and therefore we have rights over this order. So that is something that is enabling a new uh, message in the contemporary era about China as a founder of the international order to gain more historical weight. But to do it, some historical truths which are awkward, but can't really be brushed under the carpet anymore, have to be brought up. So the most obvious one is that the the China, the Chinese regime that signed that UN Charter was, of course, not the communist regime of today or even the communist regime of 1949. It was the predecessor nationalist government. And the vast majority of the delegates sent to the United Nations Conference in 1945 were sponsored by the nationalist government. There was one communist uh, delegate there, quite senior figure, the um, veteran uh, um, revolutionary uh, Dong Biwu. Uh, but nonetheless, it will be a stretch to argue that the communist role in the um, negotiations were particularly was particularly major. But by forcing the idea that 1945 and that foundation moment for the international community, the international order, is one in which China has a role too. Inevitably, it's become necessary to include some of that earlier period of history and non-communist actors as part of the story. And that's now become quite mainstream in the way that Beijing tells the story of that time. Thank you. And I would just like to turn our attention to events happening in Europe with uh, the war in Ukraine. I'm curious, when we examine China's history over the past two centuries, we find that it was a victim of different forms of foreign intervention within its, you know, its own country, within its own land. Um, how, does, how, do, how do China's efforts to revise its own historical narratives fit with its refusal to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the violation of its sovereignty? So really interesting way to put the question. Of course, theoretically, you could have put the question the other way around, which is, Why is it that China's obsession with not violating sovereignty remains so strong that even though it could have given full support in the UN to its friend Russia, it hasn't actually done so, it's abstained instead? In other words, the abstentions in the UN, first of all, back in the original vote in uh, spring earlier this year, and then a more recent one to do with giving or not giving Zelensky permission to address the UN General Assembly by video link, which China abstained on, it didn't turn him down, um, whereas some of the countries did support Russia and try and deny him that, uh, that access. Why is China finding itself sitting on the fence? And I think it is that essentially the Ukraine war has created what I have uh, been quoted in the New York Times as, uh, as uh, saying, Xi Jinping is on an exquisite tightrope. In other words, there are two conflicting and driving geopolitical needs, both of which he wants to maintain and which Ukraine at the moment doesn't let him maintain indefinitely. One of which is the idea that in almost all circumstances, not every single one, but in almost all circumstances, one red line for China is violating territorial sovereignty. And again, China wasn't the only one, but it was one of the several reasons that China gave to oppose the invasion of Iraq in 2003, to give one example of that. 
And it's one of the reasons why China has never actually endorsed any of Russia's territorial grabs in the last couple of decades. It never endorsed Georgia in 2008. It never endorsed, it still has, this day hasn't fully endorsed or endorsed at all Crimea. It's left it neutral in terms of, uh, of that question. And Russia, of course, hasn't raised a fuss about it because they need Beijing for other things. At the same time, it has become eminently clear that relations between the United States and China are going to remain pretty chilly, pretty frosty sometime to come, uh, ideally in a non-conflictual way, but nonetheless, it's unlikely that the relationship will warm up in the near future. In that context, Russia remains very important for China because it is, when all said and done, an important, in some ways, ideologically uh, similar, if by no means identical, global actor which can be used as a sort of reliable vote at the UN and elsewhere in terms of backing norms on things that China wants. So, for instance, internet sovereignty is a good example of that, where Russia and China have a very similar mindset uh, and where liberal states that basically argue that the internet should continue to be very transnational um, would be less likely to uh, to find, uh, find favor. There are also practical elements at the moment. China's definitely benefiting from cheap fossil fuels, which are coming in from... Um, Russia, as indeed is India, of course, uh, as well. But that having been said, I think that if you had to give the Chinese leadership one wish over Ukraine right now, if it could end tomorrow morning, they would be extremely happy because it essentially relieves them from a geopolitical dilemma. I think they'd prefer Russia to win if they had a choice, although they wouldn't say that explicitly. I think they certainly prefer an outcome that means that Russia, while weakened, does not collapse. They don't want a failed state on their borders, and they value Putin as a partner enough to make it clear that actually him disappearing would be problematic from their point of view. But all things being equal, the conflict in Ukraine does nothing for China. They're not particularly interested in getting involved in the resolution of it, as their actions of the last six months have shown, where they have called for peace but not really convoked any meetings that might uh, actively push it forward. And if it ended very fast, they would be perfectly happy with that. You could talk more about China's relationship with the U.S. as it is right now and as it has been, I guess, from Trump to the current sort of configuration. Obviously, what has been happening in Ukraine has not helped the relationship between China and the U.S. Uh, the Pacific um, theater is still a very contentious place as well between the two, nation, uh, between the two nations. Do you see there being many potential cleavages uh, that could cause some type of violent outbreak between the two nations? Or is that sort of a very you know, unlikely possibility? There's always the possibility of an outright conflict between the United States and its allies and China in the Western Pacific region. And certain events in the last few months most notably the upping of stakes on Taiwan, has given an indication of where those tensions might be. I think none of this is a secret to anyone. The thing that is indeterminate at the moment is how soon, how quickly, and how effectively any Chinese action to try and unify with Taiwan on a coercive basis could actually operate. And while there's no definitive answer on that question, or even whether China in the end actually would want to make that move sooner rather than later, which is assumed, but not yet necessarily proved by any specific action, that there are 
a variety of obstacles in the way. On the Chinese side, the armed forces of China are very, very extensive. They're technologically very advanced, but they're still relatively unproved. Uh, it's weird to think, but it's worth noting that in the world, the United States has in the past you know, five, six, seven decades, have had, pl had plenty of combat experience, some of it happier than others. That's true, actually, for the British Army, the French as well. The Chinese haven't really fought anywhere since their brief and not very successful mini-invasion of Vietnam back in 1979, the exception being peacekeeping operations, but those tend to be a very different sort of nature from an all-out military campaign. And that being the case, I think that there are both useful and misleading comparisons with the Ukraine situation. I think the misleading one is to think that Ukraine itself either raises or lowers the stakes from China's point of view in terms of trying to unify with Taiwan. Uh, because I think that has been on, you know, that has been an intention of the Chinese Communist Party for a very long time. And whether or not something happens in Eastern Europe is, is not really relevant to that. But what they will have learned from what they've seen so far in Ukraine and the Russian invasion, which is now, as we speak, somewhat being pushed back, is that these things are not as easy as they might appear. It's dangerous to believe your own propaganda. And that winning the war of narrative is both very important, but also very difficult to undertake. And that's quite aside from the practical, topographical, and uh, strategic issues in the very different sort of enterprise that taking Taiwan would involve, as opposed to the invasion across a land border that you see in uh, Ukraine. So I would say that working out how all sides can avoid conflict over Taiwan is a core task for the 2020s and is one that I think is likely to exercise more and more of the time and attention of the United States, as well as in a different sense of China, because China, of course, is trying to avoid conflict but seek a particular end, and the aim of most liberal actors in the region, not just um, the US, but Japan, South Korea, and others, is, I think, essentially to try and preserve a version of status quo. It's a difficult balancing act, but it is, I think, the one that is going to be most central in the next few years to shaping the US-China relationship. Thank you. I think that's a great place for us to finish. Thank you so much for speaking to the uh, ballpark this afternoon, Professor Rana Mitter. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Rana Mitter is a professor of the history and politics of modern China and the director of the University of Oxford China Center. And that's it for this extra inning of the ballpark. Thanks to Professor Rana Mitter for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Anderson Tan. A theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, Seattle-based Gypsy Jazz Band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lsc.ac.uk or send us a tweet at lsc underscore us. And tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the failing U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>